Bible reading is uh, from the book of Galatians, chapter 4, verses 1 to 7. It's on page uh, 1220 in the Pure Bible. Galatians, chapter 4, verse 1. What I'm saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. He is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. Verse 3. So also, when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principle of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. This is the word of God. Thank you, uh, Yanni, for reading um, that passage of scripture for us this morning. I trust that you keep your Bibles open to that passage uh, as we work our way through Galatians uh, chapter 4, uh, 1 through 2, 7. Well, before we look at God's word this morning, let me uh, once again come to our God in prayer and seek his help as we understand his word. Lord, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for this wonderful uh, Subject of adoption, uh, we pray this morning that uh, you would encourage our hearts, uh, strengthen our faith, and help us to see the deep things of you, Lord, revealed to us in your word. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, if you are visiting here with us this morning, uh, we are working our way through the book of Galatians, Paul's letter to the Galatian church. Evening services, we're working our way through uh, the book of Romans. So we are doing both letters from the Apostle Paul. In some ways, we are kind of going hand in hand uh, with the book as well. So this morning, uh, we're going to look at this passage, Galatians 4, 1 to uh, 7. Let me very quickly... Uh, say this, the Galatians were playing around with a return to performance-based religion. They had made an idol of the law, and Paul had to deal with that. In Galatians chapter 3, we worked our way through a challenging part of the Bible, especially with the relationship of the law and the promise and the covenant that God made to Abraham. How do we connect the relationship between the law, what was the purpose of the law, and so forth. We looked through aspects of biblical history focusing on three great persons, Abraham, Moses, and Jesus. We saw how God made a promise to Abraham to bless all the families of the earth through his posterity. We refer to Genesis chapter 15, where God covenanted with Abraham to keep his promise, an amazing covenant that God did make. And then God did give Abraham a son, Isaac. And then we saw that the promise pointed to the ultimate offspring of Abraham, his offspring, the seed, Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah. And then we saw that God gave Moses the law 
which in fact did not annul the promise God made to Abraham, but was necessary to lead people to Jesus Christ. The law was given to show us and to show up our sin. Each time we look at ourselves, or we look at God's law, and particularly as we look at the commandments as well, we know that we have failed God. Right? And so the law was given to show up our sin, like standing in front of a mirror. It tells us exactly what is going on in the way we look and everything else, all right? The law was given so to show up our sin. The law shows up our guilt, our shame, and our condemnation before holy and righteous God. And therefore, everyone who, who kind of hangs themselves to the law and looks at the law, the law should drive a person to see Jesus Christ and the promise that God has given to us through Abraham. They will be saved by placing their faith in Christ, not on account of their performance, not on account of what we do, but solely by trusting in Jesus alone, be justified and made right with God. Very important to know that. And so today in our passage, Galatians 4, 1 to 7, we have one of the most amazing work of God in the lives of individuals. For me personally, to be adopted is absolutely mind-blowing. To be adopted by God is something that is beyond my human comprehension, beyond me. And so if I was to give an outline uh, to this uh, text here, we will look at the slave, the son, and the status, right? That if you want to have, have an outline, you can look and follow that basic outline this morning. The slave, verses 1 to 3. Look at this, what the Bible tells us that. I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. What is Paul on about here? So far, Paul has used two metaphors to explain the purpose of the law. We've seen that already, the prison guard and the pedagogue last week, the tutor. Now he introduces a third metaphor, guardians and managers or trustees. And Paul gives us an example of a child who may be the one who's going to inherit a massive inheritance. The, the son who is going to, in, to inherit this inheritance that is in store for him. And it might be worth for us to know this morning something of the Greek civil law, which, which law Paul may uh, have in mind in using this illustration. It was customary at the time for a rich man to hand over his son to the care of some guardian or trustees. And now throughout his childhood, the eldest son knew that he would inherit his father's wealth or estate. He knew that, but he did not own it as yet. And one day it will be his by promise. The son is the lord of all the father's wealth, which belongs to the father. And by title, he owns it, but he actually does not possess it. 
he had no legal or property rights and he was under the guardian or the trustee. And as a son, he was kept under the control of the guardians and trustees. He was called perhaps the young master. Right? We might write a card to somebody, master so-and-so. Right? He was called perhaps the young master, master because he would one day inherit the wealth of his father, and he was young so that he was kept in his place as a youngster. And now imagine what life was for this young master. Although he would one day be the master of everything his father has given to him, for the time being, he felt just like a slave. He was under the control of the guardians and the managers. He is no better than a slave because his life is under someone else's control. That must be hard, right? Imagine you're a young person and you are going to inherit everything that your father owns. Millions of sheep, for example. <laughs> Two million sheep, right? I mean, imagine that. I wonder how much that is worth. And then you can't still enjoy that, even though you know that it's going to be yours. But the guardians and the managers are saying, hey man, no youngster, you just stay there. You don't do anything. You've got to follow us. Even though one day, you know, they, those guys are going to work under this master. <laughs> so, what is Paul trying to say here? Right? He will be under the guardians and the managers, verse 2, until the date set by his father. Eventually, he will receive his inheritance in keeping with the date legally set by the father. And so in verse 3, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. So until that time, we were enslaved. And if you want to look at this word, elementary principles, which we will look at in a moment, my understanding is that you were enslaved by the law. You were kept under it until the day set by the Father. And we will see that day in a moment. Now, what are these elementary principles? This word elementary uh, is a word that uh, perhaps has two meanings. It's like learning the elementary things of life, like the ABCs of life. Like if you're practicing or you're learning your guitar chords, right, which I am trying to do at times, right, you learn the basic chords like C and D and E and E major, E minor. Right? You know what I mean, right? See how good I am with this guitar playing? No, I'm not. I will not be allowed, I suppose, to be part of the music team. You never know. Right. So you're going back. You're learning the basics. You're learning the ABCs of life. If you're doing a cooking class, for example, if you watch uh, uh, what's it, MasterChef, which is, I think, a good, a nice show because I enjoy those guys cooking well. The other day, I actually tried cooking an egg the way this, uh, this great chef cooked it. I actually tried it, and I said to Rose, Look at it, dear. It worked. The first time I did it, it was overboiled. The second time I did it, I cut it up, and it was so nice and soft on the inside. There's an art in boiling eggs. Did you know that? <laughs> I never knew it. Right? So you go back to the elementary principles of learning the ABCs, and so then you keep developing as you go along. If 
outside. The elementary, the, the second elementary thing could be the elementary spirits of the universe. The elementary spirits could be, uh, I think it's a reference to the law, where it means then that to study the law was to learn the basics, to learn the alphabet, so to speak, of God's law, and so to be under the law then was actually a sign of spiritual immaturity. As one writer puts it well, for the Galatians, to go back to the law would be like a PhD student repeating kindergarten to work on his alphabet. <laughs> Any PhD students? There you go. Okay. And so if the Galatians wanted to be grown-ups spiritually, they have to advance and go beyond the law. And that's what I think we have here in our text. And further, these elementary principles could also be a reference to spiritual beings worshipped by the non-Christians in, in chapter 4, verse 9. But I think here the reference is to the law. John Stott explains it this way. God meant the law as an interim step to man's justification. Satan uses it as a final step to his condemnation. God meant the law to be a, be, to be a stepping stone to liberty. Satan uses it as a cul-de-sac deceiving his dupes into supposing that from its fearful bondage there is no escape. There is no escape. That's Satan's strategy. But then God did something wonderful and amazing. We were under the bondage of the law. We have noted already the law pointed to sin in our own lives before God. The law pointed us to the holy God and the need of the Savior. And so we read in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. You have your Bibles with you? Please follow with me a simply stunning, wonderful uh, statement that we have here. In 4 and 5a. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive, what is it? Adoption as sons. How marvelous is that? You see, Jesus was born of a woman. A reference to his full humanity under the law. Right? Let us not forget the overall context in which we find this verse. It is written within the context of the promise and law. It is written within the context of the promise God made to Abraham. And the beginning of this promise, we see coming, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, right in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, right? I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's the promise that God made right in the garden of Eden. How's that? When God could have turned away from Adam and Eve. But he made a promise to send a son. And right there in the garden, God promised to send the Savior. He will be born through Eve. And he will come through Noah's line, through Shem, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David, and then the promised seed comes down the line and we read this in Matthew 
chapter 1 and verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Wow. Did you see that this morning? Right. The Savior who is to be born of a woman will come into conflict with Satan. And he will defeat Satan. And God made the promise in the beginning to send his son. And our God is the promise keeper. Yes? The promise keeper. He is unlike the false gods of this world. No, no, our God keeps his word. Now, those of you who came for the Reformation debate, what a night, right? Thursday night was. I mean, I thought it was a great night. But then again, I may be biased. I was moderating the, meeting, the, the, the discussion. So. But I think it was a wonderful night, right? We had some great speakers. We had some great uh, banter going on. We had a good discussion. We came to the Sola Scriptura. Why do we believe in the Word of God? Yeah. Now, Genesis, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3.16 tells us that, which is our memory text. We know that. But you know something else? Why do I believe the Word of God? Why do I believe the Bible? Of course, I trust it in faith and, and, and everything else. But there is something else that makes me see the Bible as valid. Because I say it this way, that we believe the Bible is God's Word and one clear evidence that it is the word of God, is, in my opinion, the thread of biblical prophecy. Don't you see it? The thread of biblical prophecy and the promise-keeping God who promises things and works his way right through from Genesis right through to the book of Revelation. And all the prophecies of God that he spoke of has been fulfilled and is to be fulfilled. And one such promise was the coming of his son, Jesus. So if someone was to ask you, hey, so why do you believe the Bible? Tell me, oh, the Bible is almost the same as the, the Bhagavad Gita or the, 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 the Quran or, or whatever. You see, the Bible speaks for itself. But the attestation, the attestation of the authority and the authenticity of this word lies behind the God who has inspired this word, who has given us this word, and the God who is the promise keeper, and we see the attestation of Scripture right through. Don't we? And so God's promise, sending his son, happened. <laughs> Verse 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under law. Now, that is a Christmas sermon. Right? That is a Christmas message. We are already in the month of July. Before long, the shops will have Christmas trees. <laughs> you may, we may not like it, but we just don't know, right? Okay? When I came on Thursday night, we were playing, playing some Christmas carols on, through the system. I got a shock for a moment. I thought we were in December. The point is, God sent his son. Notice the words, God sent. The Greek word there is sent forth. The God sent forth his son. Let me highlight to you this morning, just briefly, seven aspects about the sending of his son. Seven things, okay? One, the timing, the fullness of time. What a moment 
it was not a moment too late or too soon. Just at the right time, under God's plan, when that he sent his son to be born of a woman. The timing was exact in God's plan in human and redemptive history. It was God's timing given the context of the Roman world at the time. It was God's timing given the context of the, the things that the Jews were going through at the time and everything else. It was God's perfect timing. All right? The second thing is his origin, the origin of his coming. His origin was eternal. You see, Jesus had already, already had an existence before he was sent. You believe that? Yes, good. <laughs> Made me worried for a minute, right? He's the second person of the Trinity. And he did not become the son of God at the point of his incarnation. You see, he is and always has been the son of God. He's eternal. Thirdly, the manner of his coming. He was born of a woman. The manner of his coming was through the Virgin Mary as prophesied again in the scriptures in, uh, in, in Isaiah chapter 7. And so we read this in Luke chapter 2 verse 7. And she gave birth to a firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And his son was born on that very first Christmas. And guess what happened after that? Luke chapter 2. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. Because the Son has come. Heaven is rejoicing. God has kept his promise. And then we see his humanity. He became a real man. All right? Fourth thing, he became a real man. He is one with two natures, both human and divine. In his humanity, he identified with fallen mankind, and yet he was sinless. That's the difference between Jesus and any other human being who ever lived on this earth. We are sinners, Jesus is not. Then we see his humility. He was, as we read, born under the law. He came under the obligation of the law. Because to be a representative of his people, he had to live under the law. So he was circumcised. He submitted himself to the civil, ceremonial, and moral law. He became a slave. You know, sometime back, or when we started singing uh, these songs, I remember the song, The Servant King, you know? From, from heaven he came. I can't remember exactly the words, but The Servant King, right? You know, you remember that? The Servant King. Jesus, the servant king, without any rights of his own, is here. And then he comes. Also, we have a twofold purpose, don't we? You see the next one that's mentioned there. That to redeem us. Look, look at the text in verse 5. To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption. You see, he was born under, under the law. He was born to a Jewish mother, born into the Jewish nation, and so was subject to the Jewish law given by God. He lived under, under the law. Though unlike us, he did not need redeeming from the law because he came to redeem us from its curse. Galatians 3 and verse 13. He redeemed us from under the law. 
and so is. Why do we need redemption? <laughs> That's the first starting point, right? You start with a person and you say you're a sinner, they'll say, man, you are crazy. <laughs> How dare you call me a sinner? But we need redemption because we have sinned against God and we will never be able to be made right with him. We are justified through faith in Christ. Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. How and in whom do we find this redemption? Look at what, what, what we see here in Galatians, uh, sorry, um, that text there. Grace to you and peace from our God and Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our fa God and Father, to, him, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. We have been bought, he has bought us with his precious blood. 1 Peter chapter 1, 18 and 19. We've been bought by that blood. Not with silver and gold, but the precious blood. And then, we see the next reason that we have here. And that is to give us the privilege of adoption. Look at your text. So that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now, some writers, I must say this, are of the view that we have reached the climax of everything that Paul has said so far in this letter. And I am also so glad that it is. I've been worked through chapter 3 and worked through all those difficult things. What a climax we have in this letter here, friends. right? And the climax here is the teaching of adoption by God. You see, Dr. Sinclair Ferguson puts it this way in his book, The Living, uh, Children of the Living God. The notion that we are children of God, his own sons and daughters, is the mainspring of Christian living. Our sonship to God is the apex of creation, the goal of redemption. Now, let me explain as we go along. I suspect that we don't often hear sermons on the topic of adoption. When is the last time? Now, if you haven't heard it, probably it's my fault as well, and John's. <laughs> Right? Uh, when is the last time perhaps you've looked at the topic of adoption, for example? Right? I suspect not many times. I think that it gets kind of neglected in our teaching and preaching. We often speak about justification by faith. We speak about all these big terms, justification, sanctification, glorification. This is all not show off time, right? We're just talking biblical terms that way, theological terms, right? But what about adoption, friends? Verses 5b to 7. So that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Oh, friends, what a blessing this is here. Now, of course, God adopts both men and women because the women will think here, I'm not a son. Terrible. We've already established that God between man and woman is there's equality. We've established that already. You see, Jesus says this, isn't it? In John chapter 1, verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Right? We need to remember Paul is still using that phrase, the sonship example that we have here, right? That, that's the context here. Now, let's follow this. We know from Ephesians 1. That God himself made the decision to make us his children before either we or the world existed. That is that God called us 
before the foundations of the world. It is out of his choosing, electing love in his grace that he has called us, predestined us to be part of his family. Right? Ephesians. Now, of course, we see here in this text, in this passage, that adoption of us was by his act alone. It is God's act alone. Let me explain it this way. It is God's act to justify a sinner. Yes? We are justified through faith, sola fide, through grace, sola gratia, and sola Christos. My friends, you should know the five solas like this as we keep going. All right? And so here, in this passage, God presents himself as a loving father who adopts children into his family by pardoning our sins and welcoming us as his children. To be adopted then means that the person who is adopted was not born into that family. Right? Think about it. I remember in Sri Lanka, meeting people who had come especially from Europe. And we had friends from Holland who came to Sri Lanka specially to adopt children. It was a lovely, beautiful picture to see uh, children being adopted by, uh, by another family. Right? It was just wonderful. The parents signed up all the legal documents, and the transfer of the child is legally now transferred to the new parents of adoption. And the adopted child then has all the rights and privileges of a child that has been born into that family under natural circumstances. Now think about our adoption by God. See, God adopts us because we are not part of his family. And so adoption is an act when we are not part of his family, he brings us into to his family. Let me illustrate it this way as well. When I uh, remember I became an Australian citizen many years ago, I had my Sri Lankan passport. Rose had a European passport, right? And when we naturalized and I had to give up my Sri Lankan passport, I did not want to hand it over, <laughs> right? Even though I was offered a PR before I went back to Sri Lanka, I said, no, thank you. I'm quite satisfied with my Sri Lankan citizenship. And when I went, to, went back to Sri Lanka with Rose and we had to come back, it took me months to be able to get the PR to come back. <laughs> that was crazy, right? But when I became an Australian citizen, I, I became a citizen in the country uh, in Western Victoria, and I still remember, I think it was the mayor or someone who said, now that you're adopting Australia as your country, who are you going to support in the cricket? That's the question. It will depend on your answer. My giving you the Australian citizenship certificate will depend on your answer, Chris. I said, uh, <laughs> don't ask me that question, I said. <laughs> All right? You see, for us who are migrants, for example, Australia is our adopted country, right? Because we were not born here. <clears throat> now, does that mean that as we are citizens of this country, we don't have the same rights as those who are already born here? No. You know what I mean, right? We are equal in standing. We are equal in status. When we go through customs, they see an Aussie passport, and they don't worry whether you are born here or born elsewhere. You are under the authority of the Australian government. 
the passport is owned by the Australian government. It is not my personal document. And it says Australian citizen. Now it might say where you were born, but that doesn't matter because the citizenship status has been confirmed. We've been adopted. So also for us friends, when we are adopted into the family of God, it means we were outside of that. We had done nothing to earn that merit. But God, now in his abundant grace, in his abundant kindness, he takes a sinner and justifies a sinner and adopts that person as his child. How wonderful is that? Are you encouraged this morning to be an adopted child of God? What an encouragement that is, right? That God would take you and adopt you and put his seal on your life and says, you are mine. I have sealed you. You are adopted into my family, right? And what an assurance, what a comfort, what a privilege, what a joy. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. I mean, that alone is an is a incredible message. You see, God first sent his son to redeem us, and now he sends the spirit to secure us. The work of the son has been done externally. The work of the spirit is done internally, Romans chapter Eight, that we read to move us to experience the reality of our adoption. And why do we say this? The triune God is involved. We who were enemies of God are made sons and daughters of God only because the Son of God was set apart to be regarded as the servant who gave his life for us. And so he's adopted as his adopted children by the work of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit now moves us that we are able to call and to address God. What does your text tell you there? Abba, Father. No, it's not the, not the pop group Abba, right? It's not that. It's Abba, Father. Right. Uh, the, um, uh, we have this in the larger catechism, um, Westminster Confession, which says this, Adoption is an act of the free grace of God in and for his only Son, Jesus Christ, whereby all those who are justified are received into the number of his children, have his name put upon them, the spirit of his son given to them, are under his fatherly care and dispensations, admitted to all liberties and privileges of the sons of God, made heirs of all the promises and fellow heirs with Christ in glory. So friends, in adoption, we receive in this world the blessings of inheritance, by having a new family, right? We're born into the family of God. I don't have brothers and sisters. There might be only children here. You're an only child, right? Oh, I can see Andrew nodding. Yes, Andrew is the only child in his family. I know that, right? The only child. The only child syndrome. No, no problems. No fighting with siblings, nothing. <laughs> right? But when I was born into the family of God, born, adopted into God's family. You are my brothers and sisters in Christ, whether you like it or not. <laughs> All right. And you and me and God's people are part of the family of God. What a blessing that is. Right? And God has adopted you 
and he has taken you from nowhere, from somewhere, called you, justified you, blessed you with his spirit, sanctified you with the spirit, applied the work of Christ in your heart, and he has adopted you and made you a child. Whenever you feel you're so alone, whenever you feel that God is so far away from you, whenever you feel that your life is at a low ebb, whenever you feel that no one cares for you, whenever you feel that the going is rough and tough, remember that you are a child of the living God. And how good is that, eh? Yes? Amen to that, right? What a blessing that is, friends. And so we can call him Abba, Father. You see, Jesus used the same words, did he not? In, in Mark chapter 14, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Abba, Father. Right. Adopted by God. Being able to call him Abba, Father. With the, the closest term there is dearest Father. So Jesus, who always addressed God as my Father, teaches his people to say, Our Father. What a glorious, magnificent, awe-inspiring, and humbling teaching we have on adoption. So, in verse 7, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. What a blessing to belong to God and to the family of God. Are you thankful for that this morning? Right. And so, in concluding, so what does God's adoption of you mean to you today? What does it mean to you? Secondly, are you a child of God this morning? Do you know this God through Jesus? Can you call God today from your heart, Abba, Father, my dearest Father? I come to you empty. I come to you wake. I come to you with nothing. But I can come to you through the work of Jesus and call you Abba, dearest Father, dearest Father, the Father who loves me with an everlasting love, the Father who sent his Son to die for me, the Father who has redeemed me from the pit of sin, and the Father who will take me into heaven. What a blessing. You know, two weeks ago, I shared a personal story with you as I close. I didn't share this with you last week. I was... Um, didn't want to draw attention to myself at all, but it fits in an illustration. I had a call a couple of weeks ago. I lost a very close member of my family. I shared it with John and a few others. Uh, my cousin that I grew up with, uh, next door to me, 39 years of age, died of a heart attack. 39, came home from work and died. I called Sri Lanka. I was going to go for the funeral, actually, uh, last week. The point I want to get to is this. He has two little boys. And I called Sri Lanka on Saturday, and they said to me, you know, the boys are waiting for their father every evening because he would bring things for, for, their, for his two sons. And I said to Rose, I said to the kids, you know, those boys are going to grow up not knowing an earthly father. But my prayer is that they will know the heavenly father, the father who will give to them every blessing than any earthly father can give. As an earthly father, I have failed my kids many times, you can ask them. And I will never be able to satisfy my kids as a father, never, except God. And to know this God as a heavenly father is the greatest blessing, isn't it? 
that we can cry out, Abba, Father, dearest Father. Can you? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful teaching of adoption. It is beyond our comprehension how a wonderful, holy, righteous, great God could reach down to a sinner and justify a sinner and adopt a sinner as, a, as his child and to be part of the family. I pray this morning that we rejoice in our adoption in Christ. We celebrate the blessings we have in Jesus and live our lives as adopted sons and daughters of the living God in a broken world. In Jesus' name, amen.